the truth is the idea here is not even just for the bad times, but for the good times as well, for you to have something in place that you can go back to and refer to as to handle certain things. Because nothing will always go great. But even if it does go great, you want to have something that you can lean back on. You're listening to The Brands That Book Show, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs who want practical tips and strategies for building engaging brands, crafting high converting websites, and creating reliable lead generation systems for their businesses. I'm your host, Davey Jones, co-founder of two agencies, a brand and website design agency, Davey and Krista, and the digital advertising agency, Till Agency. And I ask questions so you can find answers. Today, we are chatting all things contracts with lawyer Kumbi Odebagun, founder of Legally Set. Kumbi shares tips for evaluating your contract, what clauses that she likes to see in every contract, some red flags that maybe it's time to update your contract, and answers a number of listener questions such as what to do when the person paying is not the same person as the client. I know this happens a lot in the wedding industry. Or what is needed when the scope of work changes. A big thanks to Kumbi for letting me ask her so many contract-related questions, even beyond the questions that I sent her in advance. If you're in need of a contract template or a contract addendum template, check out Legally Set. The website is well-organized. She makes it super easy to find exactly what you're looking for. And after listening to this episode, I think you'll agree that Kumbi knows what she's talking about. Just a quick disclaimer, while Kumbi is a lawyer, she is not your lawyer. Absolutely nothing in this episode constitutes legal advice and therefore does not create any attorney-client relationship. This content is for general informational and educational purposes only. As always, links and resources can be found in the show notes. Check them out at DaveyandKrista.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode. It really does help. Now, on to the episode. Kumbi, so good to have you on the podcast. Excited to chat about all things legal. I feel like every so often I go through, you know, I sort of have this crisis like, oh, is everything buttoned up? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you work with other service providers who send you mm-hmm. their contracts. Do people ever get real nervous? I always, whenever we're working with a lawyer, you know, and I send them my contract, I'm like, oh no. You know, I I feel a little embarrassment around it, you know, and are they going to tear this thing apart? I honestly, like, that's the, it's so funny you asked me that because I swear, I would say like maybe 70% of people get nervous when they're, and even some of the ones that have like really great contracts. I think just the idea that you're being evaluated is, is the thing, but I'm one of those people that says, please remove the shame in your business. Like remove the shame, like that shame you a lot to yourself because you're paying somebody for a service to help you fix things or help yeah. you spot those mistakes. So and then there's no shame in my game. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, I always, we worked uh, with somebody relatively recently who was an attorney and sent our stuff over and I always feel good getting it back with very few, you know, they'll point out like, oh, you know, I saw a few typos here, you know, you might want to clean up this section, but it does, it, it makes me feel a little bit you know, better about, uh, about the contract. Yeah. Even as an attorney, I get nervous when waiting to get it back from another attorney. Cause it's like, Whoa. But then sometimes that doesn't even mean anything because sometimes you want to get as many red marks back because you want them to like, you know, push back a little, Yeah, but yeah, so I get it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe you could take a second and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're about, what you do. Oh, thank you. So I'm Kumbi Kumbi Udubogun. I'm a business attorney for creative entrepreneurs and small to medium enterprises, basically. I have, I'm based in New York. 
and I have been practicing for going on 13 years now, which is just adding up every day and indicative of my age. I am partner and co-founder of Oduberg, which is a business law firm with my partner, Leah Weinberg, here in New York. I am also co-owner of Legally Set, a contract template shop for creative entrepreneurs and wedding pros. Awesome. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about Legally Set, because I think a lot of people would benefit from from understanding what that is. Oh my goodness. So Legally Set is a shop. It's a contract template shop where we have ready-made attorney drafted contracts for entrepreneurs, um, specific entrepreneurs and individuals who are in the creative service industry. So event professionals, designers, photographers, and the likes. The idea behind Legally Set came having been immersed in the um, events industry for a while. I own a publication called Perfect which used to be called Isle Perfect. And it's a wedding blog, basically, essentially. And I found, especially dealing with a lot of event professionals, as they continue to, like, you know, advance in their career, I started seeing, like, you know, this need to service and provide legit contracts for them. And as an attorney, I always get asked the same questions over and over. Can you check out my contract? Can you help me make sure that this is, quote unquote, legally set for business? And so it just came and I was I, I just figured the answer to that was already, especially for creative professionals, I find that a lot of people always hesitant to, like, you know, spend the money on an attorney or like they're always nervous that they're going to like go quote unquote bankrupt paying for an attorney. So I wanted to create something that was legally solid attorney drafted and was basically the hours and hours an attorney would have put into the contract, whether you could have it ready made and ready to go so that these contracts you're entering and these deals and like services that you're providing are truly protected. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things, just thinking back to when the first time we were starting a business and thinking about like, oh, you know, I bet an accountant costs a ton of money. I bet a lawyer costs a ton of money. And to a certain extent they do. I mean, you can get into really specialty type situations where, where maybe, maybe that would be the case, but it's actually way more affordable than you think just to go and grab a contract, right? Exactly. It's basically the same price as an hour, like maybe even less than an hour of an attorney's time, for instance. And you've gotten something that would have cost you maybe upwards of like 2000 or about $2,000 for the price of like just one hour of an attorney's time. So it's a very, for me, it's a smart decision. Oh, for sure. And the peace of mind that comes with that. And the same thing with an accountant. You know, I think like one of the things friends who have started businesses and are thinking, oh, I'm just going to kind of get away with maybe doing my own financial legwork. And it's like, no, just go to accountant. I promise it's you know, there's a little bit of money up front, but I think at the end of the day, the the peace of mind and the amount of money it saves you over the long term, so worth it. But the Legally Set website, I mean, it looks great. It's super easy to navigate. I'm on it net right now. You know, you can shop by the type of contract you need, but then also it's organized by industry. So highly recommend that. Real quick, just sort of an aside I, <laughs> for everybody listening, like get on to the legal stuff. I'm sorry I do this, but you manage like multiple businesses. How what? How do you do that? How do you how do you split up your time? What what advice do you have for people with uh, as far as time management goes? I think it's hilarious that I'm being the, I'm the one that's being asked about like you know managing and time because I, I feel like I'm always drowning in some way or the other. But the truth is, dele- like delegating is like literally the thing that's saving me in this in this season of my life. Um, I'm also the mother to a newly minted one year old and a five year old, so time is you know a construct a lot of times. But what I will say is that delegation has really been the thing and the name of the game here, ensuring that I'm I'm putting people in places and like trusting people in places where they're able to essentially do 
do what they're in their their path of genius to do. Otherwise, I find myself doing things, which is why the statement about the accountant really resonated with me, because which is why I'm not trying to do things that I know that I'm not skilled in or I'm not optimized to be able to do. So for me, it's always about that. For Perfect, for instance, I have a social media management team, an editor for content, so that High-level things are the things that I sprinkle my appearance in. <laughs> For legally said, it's the same thing, and it's great to you know make sure that you're partnering with the right people to essentially make that easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know about life. You know, we have I guess a five-year-old as of this week, and then eighteen-month-old. Uh, so we're in a similar season right now. Very so I understand similar. That. <laughs> yeah. So I had to ask. You understand why I had to ask then? Of course, because you're also in a, in a season where that's where you find yourself as well. And I mean, it's it's. Freelancers are just like employees are saving the industries like a lot of people. So I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that I was going to ask you about is, you know, why contracts are important. And maybe you could speak to that a little bit. You know, my assumption is that a lot of people, you know, they're listening to this episode because they know contracts are important and they kind of want to get into a little bit more about that. I think one of the things that a lot of people do when they first get started is they go online and they type in like contract for photographer or something like that or for free photography contract. And they either take somebody else's contract and try to make that work for them, or they just kind of take what they find maybe on the first page of Google. That's a lot, but maybe you could speak to a little bit about maybe why people shouldn't go that route and why it's just important in general, especially as a service provider, to have a contract in place. Oh gosh, great question. So first of all, like contracts are important because they establish the the rules of engagement. They also establish and eliminate he said she said when it comes to your business. Like it's very important when something is like somebody's expecting something from you in exchange for something or expecting something for you in general for you to be able to have proof and an established rule and direction as to how this is going to go. A lot of people are always saying god forbid or like knock on wood when it comes to like oh I'm not going to get a dispute this person sounds like a great person but the truth is the idea here is not even just for the bad times but for the good times as well for you to have something in place that you can go back to and refer to as to handle certain things because nothing will always go great but even if it does go great you want to have something that you can lean back on and remove the stress from so i think everybody can agree on that as to why contracts are important and in certain situations things have to be in writing. A written contract has to be in place in order for you to be able to have it enforced in court. So it's something to remember. In terms of why it's never a good idea for you to just like phone in your contract, basically, and not just copy paste something that's in somebody else's agreement is because a contract is a living document that works hand in hand as a whole. It's, a, it's something that each clause feeds off the next clause and of the next clause to make one cohesive statement. One of the things that breaks my heart the most is seeing a contract that contradicts itself. And that always happens. Not always, don't quote me, but a lot of times you find that in situations where people have just kind of copy pasted something that they found in somebody else's agreement. Because then, and I use this analogy all the time, then you're finding mortgage language inside a service agreement, or you're finding mortgage language inside a photography agreement, which has no business there. There's a whole thing happening now I saw in the news last week where somebody copy pasted a contract from their previous contract, the clause in there, and now it's costing a company like $60 million. That is, yeah, because somebody did not look at that aspect and realize that something wasn't supposed to be there and it opened the door for something else. So, I mean, we might not all be dealing in $60 million contracts, but the idea here is that you want your contract not to tear apart or just crumble apart when it's time for you to enforce it. You want to make sure that your contract says the thing that you wanted to say, says it consistently 
And also, you just want to have peace of mind knowing that you understand why this thing is in place to protect you. So that's that's it for me. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, a few things there. I mean, one, even after you know, 15 years of running a business, you know, I've gotten pretty good at, at spotting, you know, maybe potential red, red flags when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, clients, but not perfect. And so yeah. I think everything is good until it's not. And so having the peace of mind of a contract that you can go back to and really understand is important. I think one of the other things that you brought up, which is really important, which I don't think maybe people who, you know, if you've gone online and just kind of ripped together a bunch of uh, different contracts being able to explain to somebody why the contract is the way it is. And that's something that I do want to get to at some point uh, during our conversation is because, you know, it's one thing to have a contract. One thing that I've realized is that it's really good upfront for people to understand what, what it is that they're signing and what's in the contract, you know, because I think even if you have this, this great contract, when there is a problem, enforcing it is a whole nother situation, even when it's all buttoned up. Yep, exactly. Because each stage of your owning and processing a contract, there's there's literally enforcement can look differently in different stages. But that's the reason why you, it's really, really important to have a consistent agreement from the beginning, because that way you're able to like, you know, that way from the beginning, you're able to weigh the options and weigh it and realize whether or not you want to now bring in someone or bring in an attorney to help you now even like weigh whether or not you want to go the distance with certain things. But it's really, really important for the beginning that it makes sense and that it, it's like, you know, you've weighed the options for lack of a better word. Yeah. So as people are sitting down and maybe they're listening to this and thinking, oh, you know, I'm not, maybe, maybe they're guilty of doing this and no judgment if you are, you of know, course, I think when never. you're first getting started, mm-hmm. you know, I, we definitely, we definitely had a little bit of that where we were looking at other people's contracts and like, oh, that sounds good. Let's throw that in, into ours. So no judgment. <laughs> I, still uh, get, I still get that even now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no judgment if that's you. But you have a contract that's, you know, I'm thinking about ours actually, you know, and so it's something that we got years and years ago now. And it has maybe evolved just a little bit, you know, here and there, you know, we went through, for instance, like COVID. And maybe that's something that's worth talking about too, is like, maybe has COVID evolved contracts a little bit as well. But Point being, they're evaluating their contract, trying to understand whether it's good or not. You know, are there certain red flags that you see in contracts or that people people should look for that indicate maybe it's time for them to get a new contract or or whatnot? Or are there certain clauses that every contract should have? Very good question. So there's okay, so there's two parts to this. And sorry, Davey, I know I, I can be very wordy. No, but this is great. <laughs> Take as much time as you want. Thank yeah. you. But basically, so you're right. COVID really changed. It didn't change the like. I wouldn't say it changed it necessarily, but it changed the mindset towards contracts, which is really important. And COVID also like for any kind of business owner across industries, there was this reflection basically because there's a lot to think about now. Something through everybody for the loop in terms of like enforcement and also fulfillment of the agreement. So those things, those things can always end up being like, you know, those things that make you have to start thinking and have to start considering whether or not did I give too much money away or did I lose money on the table? What can I do better in my agreement? So that also plays a part in definitely in the conversation about what's it called about, about, you know, what to look for and what red flags to look for in your agreement. For one, red flags as a whole. One is, first of all, you want to see how much, like what's happening when it comes to payment enforcement. You have to be able to evaluate. That's something that you want to see. The way your contract is drafted right now, do you find yourself having to send refunds all the time? Do you find yourself having to lose money? Or like, you know, if the cancellation happens or if something changes, why? what's happening? And am I leaving money on the table all the time? 
Another thing is to make sure that your cancellation and postponement or like, you know, a changes clause across board is making sense, is consistent. What happens if there's something that happens that makes it, um, makes both parties unable to like, you know, fulfill the agreement? What happens if you're not able to fulfill the agreement? So those clauses on its own already are looking like they're, they're red and green flags at the same time. You want to make sure that those clauses are very clear as to what to do and what not to do. A red flag in an agreement for me as an attorney is seeing that it's not clear who the individuals or the parties entering the agreement are. That's one that I see a lot of times where a lot of individuals are are seeing basically that you're not sure who you're going to go after or who is the actual client in this situation. Who's the responsible party? Who's the person that's responsible financially, contractually, everything? That's a big one. And that's even from the beginning. A red flag for me is seeing people entering these agreements as individuals and not their entities. If you have an entity, it's probably best that you lean towards that because there are certain liability protections you could be able to get as an entity instead of an individual Especially if, for instance, you work, let's say you have an agency or you want somebody else to be able to fulfill it within your company. It's always a great idea for the entity to enter. Red flags for me is like it's not clear who's responsible if something goes wrong. What does a client's default look like? Like at what point is the money owed to you? How much like if that is not clear, your contract is too open ended and you want to make that very clear from the beginning. Maybe we could talk about responsible parties first, because I think that's a, you know, pretty common, especially in the wedding industry, pretty common question. You know, it's like parents are going to pay, but the bride and groom was the one that actually, or the ones that actually reached out and solicited the, uh, the services of a photographer or a planner or whoever. So in a situation like that, how does somebody get clarity in terms of who they're responsible to? Because you could see how, you know, parents being the ones that are paying for it think, well, you know, this photographer needs to be answering to me on some level. Whereas the, the photographer might be getting vastly different directions from the bride and groom. So in that case, like when it comes down to the contract, what does that, what does that look like in terms of who you're entering into the agreement with? So for me, and the easiest way for me, I, I believe is the easiest way to handle this, is having something called a third-party payee agreement, or sorry, payor agreement, where basically the third party is financially responsible, but the client is still clear. That way, the third party is basically guaranteeing financial payment and is dating that they're going, it's an addendum to the agreement, basically, that states that they will be financially responsible and that is what they will be responsible for. And then maintain that the couple is still the client and the couple will be the responsible party in terms of the conversation, in terms of direction. And that way you're not going left and right because you, you're right. You do see that a lot, especially like in, with, with families in which the, um, somebody else is paying instead of the bride or um, instead of the couple, whoever it is. So it's really important that that's established that this person that's paying is financially responsible. However, all conversations direction will be handled by the couple. Yeah. Awesome. And so is this something that if someone were to go to legally set, they could get situated yes. with, you know, cause I think that's of the next course. way I would ask you, well, how do you put that in your contract? But that's just, you know, I think beyond the scope yeah. of what we can cover it in. Can, it can- in it can be episode. complex. That's yeah. the thing, obviously. Like everything is contract dependent, right? But in situations like that, we already have a third party payer and them available and legally set. So you can just buy that and then include it and attach it, like have it added to your agreement basically as its own, like its, its own addendum. Awesome. The next thing I want to talk to you about is payment and understanding when payment is due. One of the things, and this is this might not be correct, but my understanding, for instance, is that whether you use the language of retainer or deposit connotates different things. So for instance, like 
if you pay somebody a retainer, that can be non-refundable, whereas a, a deposit can't, or maybe vice versa. Is that true? And even if not, what are sort of what are the things that people should be thinking about as they construct, you know, uh, their their payment schedule? Great question. I get this question quite frequently, and I, was, I imagine that it's of a concern for to a lot of people. But the idea here is that you don't want to lean in on the literal definitions of things too much. If like you don't want to err on the literal definition of something, if this thing is going to go to court, a deposit in definition is a deposit that's returnable. Like it's 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 a, it's a payment that's returnable. It sounds like that. Do you know what I mean? So leaving anything open ended is going to end that is going to have that going. Now retainer in itself too is not something that you just want to lean on and say it's just a retainer. You want to establish that it's a non-refundable retainer. You want to establish that it's a non-refundable whatever it is, and it's a non-refundable payment for, and establish that it's non-refundable under any circumstance as the time, as as the payment to remove that date, for instance, whatever you want to define it as. But as for some people have said that it's a payment to remove that date from my calendar and forego any other business for that day because I have committed to this. The whole idea is to establish that it's non-refundable under X or under any circumstance. That way it's, it's, it's clear from the beginning that that money is not coming back. I think people pull at the definition of deposit versus retainer a lot, but if you still do not establish how that works, then you have a problem. Awesome. As far as payments go, is there anything yes. else that people should, you know, really be thinking about, especially in terms of the payment schedule, when they're paid, how they're paid, you know, those 100%. sorts of things? That's basically it. And I think you and I already were even hinting at that in the beginning when it comes to like, you know, establishing when we were talking about red flags, like establishing what your payment looks like, when, how frequently it's going to be paid. Some people do monthly payments. Some people do three payments, like, you know, based on milestones, whatever it is, it needs to be clear and it does not need, it cannot contradict itself within the agreement. So establishing what your payment schedule is, establishing whether or not those payments are non-refundable upon payment, because it's like, depending on, on you, that's for work that's already been performed or that whatever the case it is, you want to make sure that it's clear what the payment is when that payment is due upon invoice or upon receipt. You also want to make sure like it establishes when a payment is late. What happens in the event that a payment is late? Is there a late fee? Is there this? What kind of payment methods do you take? The more detailed a payment schedule, the more detailed a payment clause is, the better it is and it helps remove any confusion. I will also say that any changes that are made to that payment schedule, any changes that are made to the agreement need to be documented in writing so that there's no confusion because one of the things that people deviate from a lot is that payment clause. And I found that even in the event of that, you want to make sure that it's clear, you want to make sure that it's documented. It's not phone calls, it's documented in writing and in amendments, how that changes. So, I mean, I guess that being my next question then is regarding changes to a contract, you know, and that happens throughout the scope of working together. Maybe somebody decides to add a service. In most cases, do you need to send over a totally new contract along with every change? Or is there maybe a more efficient, more flexible way to deal with those changes that's also legally binding? One, first of all, before we even get there, make sure that it's written in your contract that all changes will be in writing. All changes to the agreement that has been signed will be in writing. Also, I think that depending, changes should have amendments to it. So if there's a material change to the agreement in any form, for instance, like you're changing the dates, changing something, changing something that's, you know, material, you want to make sure that you have an amendment to the agreement. You do not send out a new agreement. Your agreement is already signed. What you're doing is amending whatever it is and just attaching that. A lot of people use CRMs 
a lot of times. So you can even do that within your CRM and send out an amendment. We do have an amendment template on legally set, but having something in there under the just updates, whatever it is, for instance, a lot of people change, maybe people change the date, for instance, one of the biggest changes is usually the date. Like you make sure that you put it in there and say the date is rescheduled, the date of the event or blah, blah, blah is rescheduled to X. And then that's the only thing that's amended in the agreement. Unless there's an amendment to the payment schedule, then you have that documented. You just want to make sure it handles that way. I've seen a lot of people have amendment conversations over the phone but don't reiterate or regurgitate that in writing. So whatever the case, even if you did not use an amendment, make sure you have documented that in writing, have an email thread going, some documented proof that it is in writing. Because I, I just think that it's harder to chase down and start harder to start remembering conversations. It's harder to start going back on that. I know a lot of people who have texts, please, even if it's in text, go back and reiterate it in another form or in writing, in email form, if that's the case, or in an amendment form as needed, because um, you do not want to have to start trying to remember the conversation or trying to defend the truth when it comes to the time. Yeah. I and mean, one of the things that we've done over the uh, on the advertising agency side of things is it's a matter of policy that after every mm-hmm. meeting, you send a follow-up recapping what that meeting. And I think it just, you know, it enhances the client experience. You know, it's not, it's not just a matter of even protecting yourself as, as much as it is like, Hey, here's what we talked about. And just, I mean, everybody has trouble remembering the finer details of a, of a zoom conversation or a phone call or whatever. So I really think that, uh, is just good practice in general. So that's great. You have a template for that. Another question around copyright. All right. I'm just, Mm. You know, mm-hmm. peppering you with questions right now. Um, yeah. So copyright, this is really interesting. And this is one of those things that this is why I think maybe the single most reason why I was grateful to have an actual lawyer develop a contract for us is because, you know, to me, when when I'm thinking about the wedding photography business at this point, we're just thinking like, okay, we're going to go take photos for somebody. And so when somebody mm-hmm. says, oh, well, do I own those photos? Like on some level, I'm just kind of like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm taking them for you. Like they're, you know, yeah. they're your photos. And, and, you know, I wasn't even thinking like, okay, w- what are the ramifications of that? And I think something similar in web design now where it's like, or the advertising agency for that matter, copyright's important because, you know, we have a lot of different clients. We might come up with a similar ad creative concept for two different businesses, right? And these two different businesses might even be in different industries. But, you know, what happens when one says, hey, that looks actually like a pretty similar piece of creative, you know, like we have to be able to say, well, we own this creative, right? And so we're able to, we're able to use this. And that's not to say that we're just throwing things in templates or whatever, (laughs) but point being, I mean, even on the website design side of things, like we design websites that have a a certain aesthetic and we don't want somebody to come back to us and saying, my website kind of looks like this other website, you know, and that becoming this, this really, really big issue. For the record, for anybody listening, we we haven't ever dealt with that issue. All right, <laughs> but point <laughs> being, but point mm-hmm. being is that it wasn't until sitting down with a lawyer and, and them explaining like this is mm-hmm. why it's important for you as a photographer to actually own the images did I ever really start thinking through those things. So maybe you could speak to copyright and what you like to see as far as copyright goes in most service providers' agreements. Thank you. That is a great question. 
So copyright is one of those things that generally would protect your original creation of work, like some kind of tangible expression of your work. That is the most basic definition, obviously. This applies to, for instance, even photographers with the original, like the creator of the work, the person that's taking the picture is the owner, of, typically the owner of the copyright. Just like the work that you have said now, whether it's web design, graphic design, whatever it is, those tangible expressions, those, those things that you have created, are, are, it's, it's yours. Like it's standard, it's usually yours, unless you decide to lean towards giving somebody the, the rights to that copyright. And this is why that is really essential because yes, you don't think about it when you're speaking to, like for a photographer taking pictures, like, okay, yeah, I'm taking it, but you do not realize the substantial amount of rights that you're partying away with when you do that. For instance, if somebody's saying that the, the client owns all that copyright, for instance, then what happens? Like you've basically saved, stated that, okay, you've given them all that use. They can use it in ads. They can use it as because it's theirs. It's there. No permission ever needs to be asked. No permission has to be asked about in what manner they use it, in what way that they're using it, whether it violates something that you probably stand for or anything like that, whether it could be anything. Basically, ownership also dictates use. Ownership dictates permissions. And you want to be able to retain that in some way or the other, depending on what you've negotiated with the client. So with photographers, for instance, you want to make sure that it's clear that you are still the owner of those images. The use and control is yours and you are granting permission to use in this particular way. It's really, really important because a lot of times, for instance, I've seen people come back to me and be like, okay, Kumbi, I found one of my pictures as an ad in a this, this, this. Somebody is making money off of it. How do we do this? You want to be able to retain the control, the final control of your images in specific ways. And that's how you, you govern that through permitted uses. Now, with a web designer or a graphic designer, you want to also essentially mean that, okay, now that I've created this thing, depending on how I've negotiated with the client, if the client has decided that it wants to own ex like complete ownership, it's still clear that I own copyright to my methods to use, like my uses, sorry, not my uses, but my, my original designs, the things that, are, the facets and the aspects of it in different forms. But maybe I'm giving them the entire ownership of that logo, that design, that particular thing. It's up to you how much you control. The reason why I'm saying that is, especially with like marketing agencies, if you're giving them, you want to be clear that, oh, I still retain copyright to, to my tools and things that I used to develop this for you. Yes. But you don't want a situation where you want to be able to still control whether or not they can sell, transfer, use, who is permitted to use this? Who have I granted this license to? All those things are important. I've seen situations where, for instance, an illustrator maybe handled the illustration for a book. Or and a book is the most simplistic um, example here, a book or cards or something like that. But they want to ensure that they still own the copyright to that so that that person is still going to pay me X or pay me this to be able to use that. And it's not going to resell my original design and my original creation to another person without my permission or without my knowledge or even at all. All these things is comes down. What copyright gives you as a general concept is, is gives you control. It keeps you in, in, in a place where you are able to still have financial control on your own product, on your own creation, and doesn't take that away from you unless you decide to give away those rights. Yeah, yeah. I hope and that I just, makes sense. <laughs> oh, it does 100%. And again, I think, you know, hopefully if, if someone's listening and again, this is reason, this is reason alone of all the things that we talked about, in my opinion, really just to get help with the contract. Cause it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, I guess conceptually, maybe it sounds simple enough, but it's, you know, relatively 
comp like you know in terms of actually uh implementing that in the contract i definitely think you need the help of a, a lawyer to do that so is there anything else in terms of common questions you receive from just about contracts that we should cover here before turning our attention to maybe how you explain your contract to a client oh yes so i get a lot of questions with contracts it's always really important one of the things that i didn't mention in the beginning but i think is really important to mention here is there's a clause in the agreement that gets overlooked a lot is a small clause called governing law which might sound like the most basic and thing but a lot of contracts i have read recently have been missing that and then that comes the conversation especially with creatives where our jobs are becoming very fluid in terms of location you're providing services to people in another state in another country in another place establish what governing law applies establish what dispute resu- like establish a dispute resolution clause so in the event that something goes wrong you don't want to start chasing people up and down across the country what you want to be able to do is say that this law applies to the state of x and this will be governed by the laws of the state of next any dispute that arises from that will come from there so that you don't have to start chasing people and they have to come to you if necessary so it's really important like i said it's a small clause a lot of people overlook they just get straight to the terms but then don't talk about the other things and it's all what we like to call the legalese in an agreement but they're there for a reason the reason why they're there is because a lot of things that they're, they're they're supposed to be there they might sound like they're called boilerplate clauses but they're there for a reason another one being the force majeure for lack of a better word, ish happens. Ish happens all the time. And it's really true. Like you want to make sure that, okay, so in the event that I'm unable or there's something that happens, for instance, there's a flood, there's tornadoes, there's something, whatever it is, there's COVID. <laughs> when COVID was a force majeure, like what dictates how this will happen? What happens if like something has literally made it a problem for one party to finish the terms of the agreement? How does it work? When would it be considered a cancellation? And when would it not? When can I, I as a service provider, provide an emergency substitute if I'm unavailable? Like, for instance, if I go into labor today and I, I need somebody to finish, fulfill the terms of my agreement, my contract should be able to say that I'm allowed to do that. So these are the, those are the things like what what I think I want people to take away from this conversation is that, yes, you can go five years, you can go 10 years without having a dispute or any stuff pop up in your agreement. It takes that one time for things to really get real. And you want to be prepared for that one time. Yeah. I think I saw I saw a statistic today that 53% of businesses get sued, which I, I feel like is absurdly high. I saw that. You know, but yeah, that is insane to me. So anyways, well, not, you know to, not to like to spur on fear or anything like that. But I mean, that no. when I saw that, I was like, oh, really? You know, ha- that's more than half of all businesses. I saw, I saw that statistic too. We probably saw it in the same place. I can't speak on the statistics specifically, but I will tell you that it's even rising further as we go on. I don't know if you're listening out here and you have seen it in your own business, but since COVID, because COVID shook a lot of people from both ends, from the client perspective and from the contractor perspective or from the service provider's perspective, people have become 10 times more litigious when it comes to their agreements. You will just hear somebody has a brother, sister, cousin, uncle, classmate, who's a lawyer. So you will say, I'm about to get counsel. There's lots, there's always a thread of lawyers being brought into it. So you want to be prepared. One of the things I haven't asked about is, uh, is the COVID clause. Is that something that people should still be working into their contracts or is it, is there something that uh, kind of replaces that now, you know, or does the force majeure clause really sort of cover any COVID like situations? So like the thing about it is that COVID is no longer considered, it should generally is no longer considered a force majeure moment because a force majeure is a surprising, unexpected and uncontrollable situation. Usually 
in its definition in different forms. I'll get what I have two parts to say to that. What I'm getting at here is that just like COVID was an immediate, when we were in an active, active pandemic, it was a situation in which like the lockdowns, the government lockdowns were considered a, a, a force majeure. Now you kind of want to imbibe COVID and consider COVID when drafting your agreement. In other words, you know, there's COVID outside. I know there's COVID outside. So you're still going ahead and booking this contract. So the idea now is that it's considered a general cancellation option now, or it's considered a general, you would be postponing it just like you would be postponing it for anything else. So you kind of make sure that your postponement and cancellation clauses are consistent across board. I would say that one, two, but with force majeure, you still want to make sure in certain states, force majeures can be state specific. They will be state specific because contract languages can be governed differently in different states. I say that because New York, they want you to, usually New York might want you to break down what and define what a force majeure event is. And you want to define it specifically. So if pandemics are not included in your co in your force majeure clause, then pandemics are not considered a force majeure. You have to, def you have to kind of push for it further and like really battle it out in court. So you want to make sure that you've considered that. Pandemics, infestations, government lockdowns. If you live in like, I don't want to call out any states here, but Utah, California, <laughs> or any of those states, for instance, or Colorado, where air quality might be something that's considered like a big issue where it's you are actually unable to complete an agreement if the air quality is X, Y, or Z. You want to make sure that it's clear inside your agreement. If you're in a place that gets a lot of flood, tornadoes, hurricanes, hello, Make sure that that's included and considered in your force majeure. So I say all of that to say this is the reason why you just don't want to go copy paste something into an agreement. Because why are you talking about like um, I don't even know which one of the forest fires in the middle of downtown New York City? Like so yeah. So this is the reason why your contract you kind of want to be on top of it and understand what the clauses say. Awesome. Well, before we turn to just sort of the client experience aspect of contracts, one other question, another sort of current event artificial intelligence, AI, using AI to complete your work. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, whether a contract needs to be, whether anything needs to go into a contract to account for maybe fulfilling services using some sort of AI tool, or would it just be like you use any other tool to fulfill your service? I mean, it's that's a very great question. You know, it's an ever-evolving situation now as AI gets monitored and regulated in different forms. But you also want to make sure that, like, if depending on, it just depends on what the work is. So letting them know, like, some people, depending on how essential or primary a tool it is, making it clear that maybe for one, you don't have any control over how this AI handles X part of your execution and stating that the client will hold you harmless for X, 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 depending on what it is. But I will say that if you're using AI as an essential part of your process, you might want to consider what the limitations are and include that in your agreement as a, not a disclaimer, but include it. But the truth is, as a service provider, you're still essentially accept, accepting responsibility for whatever it is that you're doing in execution of that. I One of the things that came to mind when you said that is I have, I have seen situations where, for instance, designers are using AI rendering tools to create renderings or design things. And I've seen that they've included in the agreement that it's subject to the limitations of the of the tool that you are using. I can't promise or overpromise anything other than that. I am limited by the tools that I'm using in that regard. So client will not hold, client understands that I'm assuming no liability, for instance, for any limitations in that and not providing it, like cannot guarantee the result of X. That way it's clear, but I will say that I have two things to say on the AI issue. I love a good chat GPT like anybody else. Like I ask chat GPT the weirdest things, but you also want to be double checking 
essentially you cannot transfer liability to an AI tool, especially if you are collecting payment and service for provision, providing service for that thing and promising that service done regardless. You want to be very clear about double checking and doing that. But essentially, if you want to, you can still disclaim and let them know that you are subject to the limitations of X or whatever the tool is. Yeah. I mean, I, I just ask, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this unfolds a little bit. I mean, you know, I in the news same. recently was, uh, I think it was Samsung or something, but basically they were using ChatGPT, but they were putting sensitive company data into ChatGPT and ChatGPT is learning from our input. Right. And mm-hmm. so somehow that Samsung data, I guess, was leaked via chat GPT, right? Look at yeah. That. And so, so, so interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, be careful how you use those tools if you're listening, but I like you, I mean, I use chat GPT almost every day and really, yeah, really enjoyed uh, fooling around with it. Well, one of the, the last thing I want to talk about is basically how to create a good client experience around our contracts. And if you have any tips for how somebody should present a contract to their client, because like I said, you know, if you're just sending your your contract out there, that's fine. I mean, it's good to have it in place, right? And we can we should be reasonably assured that somebody, when they receive a contract, they actually read through it before signing it. But I found in in the past that that's not always the case. So, you know, do you have any tips for you know just how a contract is presented to a client and navigating that with them, especially if a client were to have questions or to push back and say, "Hey, about this copyright thing, like I really want to own the images." How would you just How would you recommend people sort of tread those uh, issues? Okay, so that's a great question. I think one, in terms of presentation, I think you should do whatever. um, You're you're definitely open to do whatever works with your flow of business. I say one thing, like I mentioned before, a lot of people are using CRMs now because of like, you know, the retention, like the document retention aspect of it, which is a big part about when you're sending contracts. You want to make sure that you have it easily accessible, easily documented. You can do that. And especially if you're working with a CRM, you're able to tie it in nicely and everything. And also it's easy and easily accessible for either party to go back and read it and remember what it is. I will say at the same time, you want to make sure just because you're going for pretty or just going because you're going for like a nice presentation doesn't mean that you should overlook a lot of things. So you want to make sure that within, even within the CRM, it's their tracking in terms of like my payment schedule and the payment language in my contract. It's really clear as to where everything is. I have seen a lot of people now in terms of presentation, maybe having initial spaces or something for places that are really, really important. Like you want to make sure that the client has read it and has understood, for instance, postponement cancellation language, payment indemnification liability language, whatever it is that you want to emphasize. For instance, the copyright language, whatever it is, you want to make sure that it's clear, send it over to them, send a follow-up asking, I wanted to make sure that you received the agreement that I sent. Please let me know if you have any questions. Happy to jump on the phone and discuss whichever parts are of concern or whatever. A lot of attorneys will say that <laughs> it's not it's not anybody's business. Like It's not your business to make sure that they understand the agreement. But I find that in the creative space, it's really important that you're both on the same page. I don't want to hear, like the Nigerian Mimi's, already coming out. And I'm like, I don't want to hear any rubbish when the time comes about, oh, I didn't know this was what I was signing. We're both entering to this agreement informed and knowledgeable. And so we know that if anything pops off, 
this is how it's going to go. But making that an experience for both parties is always a good idea. With the copyright language, well, not copyright specifically, but I'll go into the copyright and also the model release because a lot of contracts should have some kind of like image release or permission inside it, especially if you want the client to seek permission from the photographer on your behalf, for instance, to allow you to be able to use those images in your portfolio or in like in your work or in like advertising. You want to make sure that those clauses are clear. I am seeing a lot of clients push back now and be like, okay, but I don't want you to share my images. I want nothing there. Those are negotiable clauses because then you'd be like, okay, it's the confidentiality premium. Here is how much, like, this is how much it costs for me to remove that option from this thing or to sell you the rights to these images or whatever, depending on who owns them. I will remove this and this is it for a fee. Certain clauses in the agreement will be negotiable, like the payment clause. So you want to make sure that you're able to I know I keep going back to it. You understand your contract so that you can properly like explain it to another person or more than, more than anything else, you can properly stand by it. If you say, nope, that's not negotiable and I'll be keeping that because I understand how it protects me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really like the idea of adding initial spaces Mm -hmm. next to important clauses. So if you find maybe that you have a clause for something in your contract, but people somehow you get to a point where you know, maybe it's the cancellation, maybe it's the rescheduling, you know, whatever, but you're constantly having to fight that battle. It might be good to include like a little initial there. We actually do that in our contract for a few different things towards the bottom. You know, I would say it's not even for things that we feel like are, have legal ramifications to them. I mean, I guess maybe one of them does, like one of them is around password sharing. We make it clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We make it clear that we recommend you use something like OnePass or LastPass or something like that to share passwords securely. And if you decide you want to text passwords or <laughs> email passwords, like, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a responsibility you. you're taking your, uh, upon yourself. But anyways, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. And, you know, I feel like I just have a whole page of notes here. I mean, again, just speaks to the reason why people should take their contract seriously, because even after 15 years of business, I'm thinking back, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, we need to, <laughs> we need to check out that clause in our contract and just make sure, you know, everything's good. But if you are looking for a contract, head on over to uh, Legally Set and take a look there. We will also make sure that we include all of Kumbi's links in the show notes. So if you are looking to follow along with her, head on over that way. Uh, Kumbi, is there anything else that you want to just call attention to before we sign off here? Oh, no, this has been really good. I think if you're sitting down here and you're just listening and wondering whether or not it's time for you to update your contract... It's probably time for you to update your contract. <laughs> so, yeah. so at least have somebody look at it or check out Legally Said. I'm also offering your um, listeners 20% off the entire shop if they want. So I'll include the code. Awesome. We have to come up with a code. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll get that from you. And then, uh, yeah. you know, if you're listening, go and check out the show notes. We'll make sure that the code is there and definitely check out Legally Said. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Brands of Book Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this episode with others. For show notes and other resources, head on over to DavianKrista.com.